Hello, my name is Will Blackburn. Welcome to the first of my military podcasts. This involves an interview with uh, Nick Garland, somebody who was a serving soldier in the British Army. And yesterday we were talking about the issues of trauma, modern military experience and all the issues around injury and, and how that affects the modern soldier. Please bear with me. I Forgive me for my sausage fingers. I uh, turned what should have been one podcast into four separate sections, but please bear with that and listen to myself and Nick talking about the military and about our experiences. Many thanks. Nick, good morning. Hey. I'm very well, thanks. And you? Very well indeed. Very well indeed. Sorry about that. I didn't realise you actually had to uh, to download the application as well. Um, oh, that's all I, right. <laughs> Hopefully that's not clogged up your phone with all sorts of extra apps you don't need. Oh, no, 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 no. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, fine. Fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well, uh, as I said to you last week, I thought we should do this just to see how it goes. And um, I've been in touch with one or two other people about doing it, and they're they're quite keen as well. I've got um, someone from... Uh, so the Suez campaign lined up as well, which could be quite interesting to speak to. So, uh, oh, really? They say yes. Well, I suppose it's it's um, it's one of those things where you realise that um, you know not only are the sort of Second World War generation kind of increasingly no longer with us, but but subsequent campaigns as well. And I remember a few years ago meeting up with a whole load of um, Falklands um, veterans, the Sama um, group. And uh, I suddenly realised, gosh, these guys are all getting on a bit too. And for me, I mean, the Falklands is probably way before your time, but the Falklands uh, for me is kind of seems still seems fairly recent. But again, probably about well, it's thirty five years ago now. So um, yes, yeah. Uh, the the after effect of it, that sort of ten to fifteen year post, um, I suppose post event where people have. I say, grown up, understood their emotions, understood what they did, has probably been and gone as well. So there's a lot more constructive thought rather than emotional thought about about it, I suppose. Well, absolutely. And I, th- I think, sadly, that's quite an interesting, consistent theme. about. And I know you've written extensively about trauma and what it means and, and the sort of whole science of that within the soldiering and, and generally the forces community and I, I know that one of the interesting things I've sort of read anecdotally and I, I, um, I think it was uh, Richard Holmes wrote a, a book called Act of War. Hi Will, sorry my, my phone went on to loudspeaker and so I minimized the app and uh, to try and turn loudspeaker off and it turns out when you do that it cuts you off. <laughs> so yeah. I won't come again. I, I think it's one of the one of the dramas of freeware is that it's uh, it's 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 free, which is yeah. good, but a little bit simple. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, that's fine. No, I, I was saying about the, the Acts of War book by Richard Holmes. What what's interesting is that um, these lessons about trauma are, were sort of known, and I think this is known too for a very long time, and not just back to sort of First World War. Um, and all the all the research that was done then, but American Civil War, they they knew extensively about battle fatigue, the effects on people, what it kind of meant, and it was it was written about then. And it, it's 
it's one of the I suppose it's inevitable, but it's one of the great sadnesses, I think, that, that these kind of lessons are forgotten um, by the military. And I suppose often it must be down to funding, people moving on and all that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah oh, oh, very much so. I think it, I think it's the it's it's the people moving on bit, which is fascinating and the transitory nature of the army or the military that uh, and I know they're much much better than they ever were but you come off of a flight um, interestingly only just this weekend I was at a reunion that I set up for my troop uh, on Herrick 15 which is 2012 um, and there was one individual there that said he left tour two weeks before the end because he had to attend a educational course and he hadn't seen anybody from that experience, that whole tour, since then, eight years, and I'm saying you're joking, or seven years, and he said, no, no, I've not, I've not seen, I've spoken to them on, on on technology, but I've not physically seen anybody, because he went on one educational course, and then his career just sort of took him off on another plateau, and you go, so no shared memories, no shared experience, no shared thought, nothing. Technically, he's absolutely fine, but but I think as time has gone on. Um, it, it becomes the norm and you just, that, that is then the normal, we're very transitory people now. Um, whereas I think maybe historically that was, that was slightly different. And it's, it is that weird thing of, um, and I, I suppose from a military perspective, um, that's absolutely the thing that should happen. If you've got a course coming up, then you go on the course, um, and away you go. And there's, I, I think, I remember speaking to um, uh, someone I was at university with, actually, who um, career soldier, and I think certainly in his unit that was one of the biggest problems they had in terms of dealing with people. And again, it's it's not that people necessarily need dealing with in inverted commas. It's it's just managing that ridiculous sort of gear change from an operational environment to um, a garrison environment, and I think. It, it, it's anecdotally I've heard that that it's almost the garrison environment is is more challenging in that you go from somewhere where you know absolutely all your skills are being used you're being tested to your limits and to a certain extent you're you're doing um, everything that you want to do and then you get back to the garrison and actually peacetime stuff it doesn't really doesn't really sit very well with a lot of soldiers of all different ranks. And one of the things he said, which I was really interested by being a former TA soldier, so different experience in terms of coming back, but from a regular soldier's perspective, and I'd be interested to hear what you've got to say on this, is that managing soldiers' expectations in a garrison or in a barracks environment after an operational tour created real retention issues. And I was thinking on top of that, now there are no longer really any operational tours as we knew them 10 years ago. I wonder whether people are just signing off just because they think, you know what, I actually miss the tours, which is counterintuitive probably from a civilian mindset, but from a military mindset, I can see exactly why. Yeah, I think the, the, um, I think the, it's a very complex dynamic as to why people move and and decide that the the armed forces aren't for them um i i'll come back to the point of you know are tours good for retention which i think is sort of part of the question um uh, uh to look at actually what is it that people want in the in the military sphere well 
I think historically the army, the navy, and the air force offered um, some very different social activities that society at the time really enjoyed. So traveling, uh, uh, traveling to, to to distant lands, quite literally, uh, excitement, variation, variation of careers, and it was largely seen. And this is a very um, uh, old-fashioned view that those that went off to war were normally the breadwinners of the family. Um, they were normally the men that would that would the sort of the young the young men of the family that would go off to war, uh, and and the partners' wives uh, and other loved ones would stay at home. And now that that as we know, society doesn't accept that because society's moved on, and rightfully so. So the 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 shape in which we conduct business or the or the military conducts its business has had to change and acknowledge the fact that that the the family structure has changed and evolved significantly in the last fifty years and. Um, the, the mechanism for, for going on tour um, has had to change as well. Um, uh, if we look at how the United States do theirs, they do, they do tours for, from seven months up to a year. Yeah. Um, I think if we, if we in the British forces looked at doing something like that, we'd have a, a very different outcome on, on retention because that might be seen as um, probably socially unacceptable. Um, but going back to the to sort of your question at point, which was, um, is our tours good for retention? Um, I think people join the services to to do the job that they see quite often in the adverts. And I know the advertising campaigns have, have had to change because 99% need not apply. The Royal Marines uh, recruitment advert from the, I think it was a mid 2000s, mm. um, 99% did not apply, um, ironically because it, it had that adverse effect that I'm not going to be good enough. Um, needless to say, I, I, I think the tours in which uh, many people joined, and certainly I joined the army to go and do, to go and have that fun, exhilarating excitement stuff, I don't, I don't, yes, it is good. I mean, essentially it is, it is good for retention because it keeps people focused. There's, a, there's an end game in sight, quite literally. There's a, an end point at which they need to achieve their, their goals and it's good from a from a career perspective because it tests people to to the limit of their training um, uh, and I think I think it, it builds upon all of the values and standards that all three services have sort of that camaraderie mm -hmm. and that ability to um, to to travel to see the world to work hard independently to work hard as a team and then to come back and just share that success or that emotional separation uh, and also in some respects, and in a, in a slightly dark way, I do think it, it probably has a slightly positive impact on, on the family structure, although that, that's probably a very difficult dynamic to, to explain. Do you mean from the perspective of that, um, um, I suppose the structure of going away and coming back um, allows family to sort of just get on with it sort of thing? I know he's, I, it's a, it is a difficult thing to explain, but I imagine that within a regiment or within a, a corps, um, there, there are, that can be managed pretty well, actually. Um, I know there's been a lot of literature about how it affects family structures and what have you, but I, from my own experience, and as you mentioned, one toy did not, not having a family at the time, but, but seeing those people that did, I thought that the sort of rhythm of it actually worked quite well and certainly was counter to what perhaps more negative press might say about it. But, Again, not having direct experience of that myself, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. But is, is that kind of what you were saying? That it's from a family perspective, 
um, the tutor thing was quite useful in a way. Yeah, well, yes, and I think it's. Um, uh, I think society moves at such a pace now that um, we get caught up in our in, in work and, and the the forces is such it's such a busy way of life. Uh, and, and I think I would to put it on paper and say that going on tour is good for family. Quite quite obviously, it it, it isn't <laughs> good for families to go on to go away on tour. And um, I don't think any any politician would say such a thing. Um, uh, but I do, I do think it adds a very powerful dynamic to a family structure, um, certainly around resilience uh, and also separation. Uh, it really does bring into the fact that when you are together and at home and as a family unit, it really creates a, a very, very strong uh, bond. And I'm sure most other families, 99% of other families have that as well. But that military, there is that military family ethos as well. Uh, of the loved one, be it that husband or wife is going away for a period, whether that's just a week on on on, an, on a course or on an exercise or a prolonged period of time where they're going off and, and doing a, a, a tour of, of varying, whether it's a combat tour or it's a United Nations peacekeeping mission, it's still separation from the family unit, which can be very difficult, but also that that sense of achievement at the end and that sense of uh, belonging to the, I say belonging to the family unit, but that sense of success. And, uh, and I think it only makes family units stronger at times. Um, uh, and obviously it's a, it's a supported activity if you're in a well-supported garrison town or, or a well-supported regiment unit. It's in, in terms of, I mean, certainly because one of the aspects where I think families come under a lot of pressure is is around trauma and psychological trauma particularly but also injuries as well clearly cause huge stresses and traumas for families the wider family but in terms of psychological trauma one of the things that I find interesting having talked to people who are struggling is that actually because one of the sort of conventional wisdoms is oh you talk to family about it I remember after my tour receiving a booklet sort of saying you know to choose the right moment to talk to family and what have you if you if you feel you need to and I remember at the time thinking if I was to do that you know what do you say and how do you contextualize it and and it's I, I think it's quite interesting talking to people I know who as I say who are struggling I think they almost feel that the last person or people they want to speak to about it are their family not necessarily because they, because they don't love them or because they don't want to sort of try and make them understand, but it's almost the issue of, you know, if I tell them this, are they going to look at me ever in the same way again or are they going to judge me differently? It's a, it's a very big thing to talk about on a Monday morning, but it's, it's, that's, that's where I think the family issues can get complex in a, in a post-tour environment or in a, in a military environment because... As we've talked about before, some of the things which um, traumatise people psychologically um, are sometimes very difficult to contextualise because it's not always your kind of Saving Private Ryan narrative. It can be something much more complex than that and very hard to articulate if you weren't there with that platoon at that time, with the weather, with the fact you hadn't eaten for 48 hours, all of that sort of stuff. And... That fascinates me how that element of trauma is dealt with by a family. Very interesting. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, it's a really interesting point. And I think the, 
the person that is the survivor of the of the trauma, the person that's had the traumatic incident themselves, probably carries a burden on their shoulder, be it uh, physical or or mental, or a stigma internally that they have they have either wronged or been wronged or, or have had a, a negative impact on themselves, which then to talk about it to a loved one directly who, as you point out, hasn't been there, hasn't seen it, hasn't experienced it, may place a burden upon them that they don't, they, they, they the loved one don't understand fully, they don't accept it, it, it pushes the person further away, um, which, and actually, which might have a, a, a further detrimental effect on the person that is, is coming to terms with or is acknowledging the fact that they were a survivor of, of a traumatic incident. And, and I think it's worth understanding what, is, what, what trauma actually truly is. And, and there are so many different definitions. And, and when I do some, some thinking and some talking about it, I, I, I quite often ask people to just um, have a think conceptually what do they think trauma is what is trauma because it's so unique to so many people um, that um, interestingly the Oxford English Dictionary great place to, to use as a reference point just just sums it up as a deeply distressing or disturbing experience that that is that is the summative uh, view is a deeply distressing or distur disturbing experience and therefore it can be things to so many people uh, with or uh, your loved loved one haven't shared that experience. Um, I think that that enters a whole different world of, of what are you what are you passing on to that person that hasn't has no experience other than the fact that they will they will return reciprocal love and and um, and support to you. But whether that's sufficient is um, is enough for them to experience your trauma. And I think that's, and I guess that's probably why a lot of people find it difficult to talk about their experiences. It's, it's as you say, it's not just that they can't talk about them or articulate them. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's almost that whole thing of, you know, if I hand it to you, you have to make sure you can lift it. And I don't think you can, so I'm not going to hand it to you. There's almost a, a sort of weird responsibility for your own trauma and, and the effect it can have on, on other people. I know that's something else that fascinated me, something you, you've said several times when we've spoken, is, is the whole idea of, of how sometimes the person who should be, by conventional wisdom, the traumatized person, i.e. a wounded person, and I know you have direct experience of this, may not be the person that is traumatized by that incident the most. It may well be the people around that situation. So the person who was on comms trying to get you um, Kazavact is and was struggling with the comms, they're actually more traumatized than the injured person by the incident because of the fact that there was a problems with atmospherics, etc., for example. And in explaining those situations, I, I, I guess people would immediately go for well, the wounded person must be the most traumatized person, but not realizing that that, that young uh, radio operator was really struggling because of that one incident, or the fact that actually the person leading the platoon took the same route twice in a day, and actually they, they thought beforehand, you know, that this is wrong, but it's going to save us five minutes. All those workaday things 
it's it's those traumas that I think others would find difficult to understand, but probably are as deep seated as as you say in relative terms as 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 traumas which are more obvious. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I think it's a really a really difficult, um, a really interesting place to be. Uh, and, and as you point out, I I, I have a, a direct link with trauma, uh, as I think everybody does, because it's as I said earlier, it's a, it, it's it's an expression of deeply distressing or dissatisfying experiences. Um, but I was, as I termed it in, in a writing that I did, that I was the survivor of trauma, but I wasn't the victim. And and that theory is is, is that. Well, for my my specific example was I was unconscious um, and spent a lot of time in a coma and therefore I, by the very nature of the fact, was in a coma, didn't understand, didn't have any comprehension of what I was going through, only to wake up and, uh, and be on such a high of drugs that, that I still didn't associate pain with my physical injury. Uh, and as the drugs wore off, a little bit of pain came in, but not the same emotional pain that that those that were around me struggled with or suffered from or or were on the experiencing end of and that um that that made me realize that actually in order for me to understand what had happened to me and and why i was in the position that i was in after four, sort of four weeks from from point of wounding all the way to to being awake but not feeling particularly clever i needed to go and speak to to everybody that i had had interacted along the way and, and a real journey to, to understand everybody else's view or version of, um, on, on their experience. And at this page, at this stage, it hadn't highlighted or hadn't worked out. They had all gone through a grossly traumatic incident. And largely when everybody during my recovery process, they, are you how it's all it was always all about and and that was correct in so many ways but also grossly wrong and I is going to get me better a little going to get back on my feet for all of those that were set to my primary almost um they they Regaled to me varying stories about me um, of of their interactions with that, and it was quite hard to listen to on on many occasions because a large number of people really struggled with the decisions that they made on that day. Um, needless to say, the outcome was 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 good in that I recovered and and so did the other people that were involved in the incident. Um, but for them, they live with their decisions, their actions, their visual insights which of course i don't have any knowledge of so yeah i think i think it's a a real a really detailed and unexplored often um phenomenon uh because now with social media we are socially more aware of the fact that traumas go on across the world there's uh, there's, there's world events there's earthquakes there's terrorist activities there's wars continuously going on and we become somewhat immune to this activity through social content and and, and, and television um, and in doing so I think we become slightly dis- detracted from the realities of what trauma means until it happens to us whereas maybe historically that social content wasn't there and, and our Im- immunity was probably a bit 
a slightly harder, um, a bit more robust to to such events. So um, I think the social content of of the world and the fact that we are being told about this PTSD and we're being told to speak out and we're being told to talk more about our um, thoughts, feelings and emotions has meant that actually there's an awful lot of people that that struggle with secondary or vicarious trauma as it is as it's formally known um, and I don't believe that there's maybe uh, enough of it spoken about to make people realize that it, it is everywhere and uh, and every single person you talk to when you you, you you get them engaged in an emotional conversation um, they they will highlight areas of of their experience which have had both positive and negative effects on them and that, that they relive it's it's one of those things that that um I, I believe the military now is addressing and i believe that you've you've been speaking recently to um i, th I think was it last week you spoke you addressed a, a group of soldiers about the issue of trauma specifically i guess military trauma but as you say defining trauma so in a way people understand that it's it's not just about that um dramatic incident it can be a whole range of things that that can happen both on a tour or just generally in terms of military experience i remember i was telling you last week about the um polish soldier i spoke to who had a terrible training accident um which he only really he, he hadn't really spoken to anyone about it until new year's day of this year and it was over 20 years ago but at that stage and i guess at, at, He's old enough to have been training in the communist time in Poland. So uh, probably a very, very different style of training and soldiering and what have you. But, um, you know, sort of that afternoon he was off doing something else. And yet two of his colleagues had been killed. Um, never really came to terms with this. And I think it, it, it probably was me being the sort of um, nosy person <laughs> that I am. But I was interested in his military experience and over New Year's Eve and probably best part of a litre of vodka um which is never a good idea um he, he, we talked about military stuff and then he just thought right okay i'll <laughs> this is my hand of cards how about this and and sort of hit me with a story which he'd he'd i believe he'd never told anyone else other than people in his immediate unit who knew about it at the time um and he realized gosh you know that, that contextually we were talking earlier about sort of how time changes and, and the sort of things are unlearned but it was very clear that he sort of felt now was, a, was the right time to talk about it but that actually uh, at the time there was there was really no decompression no debriefing about it at all I think other than what happened why did it happen lessons learned but in terms of the the traumatic aspect of it nothing was was dealt with and I I think it's encouraging now that it it seems that the the British forces certainly are really getting to grips with the whole mental health side of things anyway, but specifically operational experience. And I think that can only be a good thing in terms of at least it's part of part of preparation for people to plumb. Yeah, I think you've raised a really good point there that um, it's it, it is. I mean, the British forces do do a great thing in mental mental health and, and they are they are aware of it now. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, if it takes 10 or 12 years for it to manifest, then the, the repercussions of what good work is going on today won't be seen for, for, for that future period of time, largely speaking. So there's obviously, there's a, a, an element of what, what has been improving over time will, will still be needing addressed today. 
So uh, I think that's probably worth noting is that things have improved and, and the, the benefits will be reaped in, in probably the future in 10 to 12 years' time when, when largely the emotional concepts of what, what people have seen and done have um, have worked their way out of the system, if that's, if that's a, a terrible way of putting it. Um, uh, but also you highlighted the fact that um, sort of the lessons identified or the lessons learned process that, that the military goes through uh, during combat operations um, is, is, is the, the, the so what of the and then let's make sure because we're not on the moment. Um, have generations, as you always do, cyclically, the Falklands, the Northern Ireland, the, the Balkan era, the Iraq era, the, the Afghanistan era. So what's next? There's, there's a bit of peacekeeping going on and there's some other stuff going on around the world at the moment that the British forces are involved in. Um, is it major combat operations? It probably isn't. Um, but does, it, does that mean that, that it's not going to have the same detrimental effect on, on mental health? No. Um, so it's, uh, it's that cyclical process of of improvement and i know that the having been involved in it on a number of occasions that the the british forces are are very much ingrained in it now and making sure that their soldiers sailor and, their, and airmen are are well briefed and and also well supported by both by themselves and by the charitable networks that surround veterans and currently serving personnel um to ensure that a they can carry on doing what they're doing as part of their day job, but also the aftercare, which I think socially has become um, unacceptable uh, to many, uh, and that's been addressed by by the charitable sector and also by by government in in setting up new offices and things like that. It's in in terms of of operational um, trauma. I think, and again, this is a this is a, another question at you. Um, do you think part of the issue is 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 the volume of experience? So something that someone um, mentioned to me, who again, it's always you know, everything is, is different. I think it was Anthony Swafford who wrote about Gulf War One, who said that all wars are the same, all wars are different. Um, but something that someone mentioned is that that specifically at the, in the last fifteen years, um, the the numbers of people involved and the tempo operations is has been unprecedented, certainly for British Army, in as much that, and again, maybe wrong to compare and contrast, but um, say a, a soldier in World War II um, may well have um, fought through Europe and then been demobilized, and that was it. So there was a sort of beginning, middle, and end. And I, I don't, by saying that was it, that sounds terrible. I don't mean to denigrate. The service in any way but um what they didn't experience was um that kind of garrison tour garrison tour garrison tour i also have this as a career um and that complexity and i guess that's that's been a real challenge for the army uh, in the last 15 years that perhaps is is unprecedented i suppose you could say that that northern ireland maybe in the early 70s was similar in terms of tempo but in terms of just looking at the rounds reports, um, I'm not even sure you probably didn't do rounds reports um, um, on your tour. And in, in terms of every week t totting up the number of rounds you used, but I remember on the one tour that I did, um, as a comparison, 
uh, in terms of kinetic, and, and my tool wasn't that kinetic in comparison to other Iraq tools. Um, but one of the oldies saying, gosh, I remember when if 20 rounds had been fired in a week, that was sort of big news, very big reporting. And he noted that the rounds report for that week had been, I think it was 3,000 rounds, uh, 5.56 rounds, um, and kind of the compare and contrast there. And I, I think clearly at the time it was uh, of both Herrick and Telic who were very heavily reported. But in terms of the wear and tear, I wonder how, in terms of British Army experience and British Forces experience, how unprecedented that is in terms of per capita and um, the, the people building that into a career. So there's a lot of questions in there, but it fascinates me that element of, of how the military copes with that within a career context. Is yeah, I think it's... Um, <laughs> It, it is really interesting, um, uh, and I can only speak on, on behalf of my experience, which, which was 12 years of service in the British Army, but um, I, I think to look, there are a number of different career structures, as, as is well known, um, and, and, and the, I think the, the, the late entry officer of a combat unit, irrelevant of cat badge, irrelevant of type of combat unit, who will have been through um, a number of operational tours over the last 15, 20 years um, will be probably the best example of seeing uh, the best and the worst of, of true combat, of probably the, the military structures. And that's not to say that those in, in the supporting arms and the combat service support arms are, have, have experienced different things. But when you're looking at the, the round count, as you speak about, they're probably the ones that have been at the um, at the other end of the the rifle, that sort of thing, um, and they could give you a a really good insight into the changing times of of uh, be it the Royal Marines or or the British Army and how how operations have changed. Um, and I, I do think, and, and they will also will have seen how the the dynamic of the family unit and the dynamic of the sort of garrison structures of regiments and battalions has changed um, and has either benefited or, or had an adverse effect on the on the service. Um, going back to the question about about round count, I remember whilst I was at Sandhurst there was a um, there was a very interesting presentation delivered um, uh, by one of the units from one of the early uh, Herrick Afghan Afghan tours and uh, and their their headline and quite famously was a million bullets they fired a million rounds on their um six month tour which is which is a huge statistic and and i don't know if it was ever uh, replicated um but certainly that was their uh, entry point into combat uh on the afghan thing and it really put the afghan campaign on the on the map i suppose for the british army from a this is a commitment and, and we, 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 we can't back down from this because it, this is a major combat operation by the fact that um, it has to be at scale. Um, and I think as we, as we, we moved through the uh, Afghan com campaign, understood the effect of the Americans used the term the strategic corporal and uh, we then went through counterinsurgency battle and, and i know that this is a cyclical thing that that um both the americans and uh, uh and other western forces have gone through counterinsurgency and, and tried to to understand what that what that looks like in a 
um, in a Middle East environment. But then, of course, you lift that and you put that anywhere else in the world and it's a completely different uh, concept. Um, and so every round fired had a, had an impact of sorts. Um, but the role that I was part of, um, I don't think we we ever did or were ever requested to, probably um, because we were given or we, we had to understand the sort of operational imperative of what what a round meant and why why were you firing rounds um not it's a case of i need to fire rounds in order to to do something it is what happens when you do that and what does that achieve um and absolutely there's a time and a place when 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 rounds can be fired um so i don't i don't i don't fully understand i i don't i mean i can i can understand but i think it's a really complex situation i suppose to get into to say um about about, about the the the, the, na the nature of why we why we were firing rounds what was the outcome of that and what was the intended purpose because obviously every every mission had a had its own intent um uh, and therefore its own own su success and what what does success look like well success looks like nobody getting injured on both sides and uh, and everyone shaking hands but that's not what warfare is necessarily about but uh, were we at war? Were we at counterinsurgency? Um, uh, I, I don't. I don't know. It's probably not for me to not for me to answer. Um, uh, but I do. I do think an analysis of or, or conversations with 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 some late entry officers that have seen the change in dynamic and have have toured all, literally all over the world rather than just a campaign or two. Um, and that's with no disrespect meant to anybody that's just done a ten or fifteen years in one in one campaign. Um, but I do think as time has gone on, um, we've we've seen a difference in uh, tempo. And I think that's probably an area that I think you were, Will, you were getting to was the tempo of operations now. Um, uh, and again, I can only talk from personal experience, but um, because everything has a, a finite political ending and there's a, a, a as a political and a fiscal cost to it, the tempo has to be as high as it can be in order to achieve a, 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 the quickest successful outcome that it can. And uh, did we did we sweat the assets? And do we sweat the assets now to make sure that we can maximise them? Um, probably no more than British Airways do on their aircraft to ma maximise their operational output. Um, uh, whether that whether that has a strategic imperative when you're working for people um who don't like the rate of change occurs i don't i don't know so no, i haven't really answered no, your question we, there well i don't yeah, think it's it's a um, these are, are very complex issues i think part of the problem as you say is that um when when one assesses the military it, it, people have a very prescribed view um, people, I mean, is the population in general, politicians, etc. In that, it's it's wrapped up in our history. It's wrapped up in previous achievements. It's not often analysed from the perspective, as as you say, of a changing world environment. And as you say, counterinsurgency operations uh, in the Middle East can be very, very different than um, in Northern Ireland. One of the things that I find um, fascinating um, living here in Poland, um, and again, I've talked about this a uh, bit before with you that, that clearly um there is a different style of operation taking place not so far away from us in ukraine 
um, which obviously doesn't involve British forces, but it, it does involve a style of warfare, which I think is almost, uh, I'm going to use the word hybrid, but not hybrid in the sense that perhaps is being used currently at the moment, but hybrid in the sense of its sort of counterinsurgency meets conventional war in, the, in what's happening in the Donbass in, in Ukraine. Um, and that will be a different style of warfare again. And I think um, the metrics that people use, um, and again, I'm probably one of the worst offenders at this, reading military history all the time, are those kind of um, uh, sort of total war metrics, the idea that a, a nation is absolutely allocating all its resources to uh, winning a conflict, whereas what we've been involved with in the last um, 20 years is something much more complex than that, in my view, and probably will need a good while of study history uh, analysis before we fully understand what it means and how you actually factor all that in into, into future military planning. Because, um, as you say, uh, every environment is incredibly different. And to configure a military around that, I think, for the military leaders, must be nigh on impossible. How do you plan for the world we live in today? <laughs> Which is a massive question. Um, but it, it must be a huge challenge for the military. Yeah. I think I think it is, and I think it's a it's not only a huge challenge for the military as an organisation, but the people within it and the people that are um, we're empowering uh, at all ranks and all levels to to do a task because they've got to understand their outcome or their output, um, and and I suppose in a uh, a very overly simplistic model, um, when you have a a simple a combatant in uniform. Uh, and you are a combatant and they have a weapon and you have a weapon. It, it's very, very clear what the outcome is. That, um, but when you, you look at the, the way, the changing nature of the, the forces and the social dynamics that we live in, that what is a combatant now? Well, it, it could be somebody that sits behind a computer and rightly, arguably is, um, is collecting big data and is utilizing that big data to have a negative impact on somebody else. Um, that that in its very self changes both the military and and the political imperative of warfare, and uh, I think that's a that's a question for someone that's got a PhD, definitely, <laughs> um, not someone that's done a bit of time in the army. But I think it's um, I think it's a very complex a very complex beast, and I think the at the end of the day, in if if you've got a successful military, you've got to relay to the 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 people of that organisation what it is they're doing, why they're doing it, and how they're going to achieve it. And how they're going to achieve it is, is through equipping them correctly for the task at which you've asked them for. And that procurement is, uh, is, um, is hugely complex because procuring such large items of equipment now at such great expense, they have to be versatile and, and very agile um, so that they can be flexed as the as the need or the threat dictates. Um, and they have to be suitably mobile, I suppose, to ensure that they're not reliant on any one method of, of transportation. Whereas previously we knew we were fighting a land, a land complaint campaign during World War II. We were pushing across, across a bit of water and then pushing south. And when we got to the limit of exploitation, we'd, we'd either put those vehicles on a, on a, uh, on a ship again and then sail them back. Whereas now we're we're flying, we're using helicopters, uh, we're using trains, 
we're using ships, we're using boats, we're using so many different assets to achieve very complex outcomes and, and um, layered elements of warfare are now are now very much joined up, which is which is great, but it, it just adds greater complexity to um, uh, I think yeah to, to the to the modern battlefield and and I know much has been written on what is the modern battlefield and how will that emerge and the power and the concept of of big data AI robots um, automation uh, I think is a really really exciting place to be um, slightly apprehensive um, I, I think as a as a sensor because every soldier is a sensor as such um, you, you you are part of a cog of uh, of uh, fu- the future AI, uh, the future analytics of of warfare, and and I don't know what that has in store, um, but that would be a really interesting deep dive and a really interesting study into what does warfare look like. Do you, I, I think my view certainly is it will always be about taking and holding ground, um, and if or preventing it, and if a nation can't do that. Um, it will be in trouble, particularly depending on its neighbours, if it has neighbours. Um, I mean, one of the huge benefits, of course, is that Britain is an island, and that's always, to paraphrase Shakespeare, has always done us pretty good. Um, but I, th- I think, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, that, that uh, one of the lessons uh, from Ukraine, I think one of the lessons for, for Russia has been that uh, there was an assumption made that the Ukrainian army was uh, pretty defunct, its equipment was... 70s and 80s, 1970s and 80s, um, Warsaw Pact, and that it would be a walkover and Russia could take what it wanted because it spent eight years rearming since uh, since the Georgian campaign. And what did they find? That um, that ordinary blokes with uh, a great will behind them and the basically the ability to to stand their ground or take and hold ground um, gave the Russians a bit of trouble. And um, I think in some ways it's strange that the Russians should not think otherwise because they had their own Afghan experience where they were fighting people with 70s and 80s era Soviet weapons um, and perhaps should have realised that uh, if you've got people who hold their ground with weapon systems that may be fairly primitive but actually just work, um, you're always going to have problems. And I you're absolutely right to mention cyber and everything that goes with that. And of course, that's been a factor in the whole Ukrainian campaign as well, in terms of the drone technology and everything around that. But maybe it's sad to say, or maybe it's good to say from a soldiering perspective, I, I would think that, that the need to be able to, to stand your ground or take and hold ground will always be there. And a country that forgets that will suffer, sadly. That's, uh, that's my view. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I, I think there'll be, there'll be uh, an eternal an eternal requirement, and again, personal thoughts here: eternal requirement for a man in the loop has to has to be at some point somewhere. Um, uh, uh, and and ro- robots, AI, big data, great, but but you have to have control of it in order for it to um, uh, to, to make the right decision. And, and uh, um, computers, algorithms, and everything are, are becoming incredibly incredibly exciting to be to see the technology that is now out there to support the man in the loop uh, and i think it should always be supporting the man in the loop rather than being that man in the loop and, and like you point out to hold to hold a bit of ground 
Um, I'm sure that can that could be done remotely. It could be done by complex weapon systems. Uh, it could be done by sensors. Um, uh, I think there's there's uh, I don't know I don't know enough about the the technical the technical side of technology to to dictate whether the future battlefield has a requirement. I'm sure. Um, fast jets as we know them will become automated and will become UAVs. Absolutely. Does that mean that there are the, the risk that's associated with aviation from a military perspective, we can fly further, fly longer and have a more of a, uh, a strategic Im impact where you, you have no political concern of losing physical people, whereas you're losing a piece of capability um, that changes the dynamic of war as well. Um, I think is if you do take the man out the loop, you're, you've got a political, uh, a slightly different, different political angle to fight with, than um, actually you're not, you're not going to be maiming, injuring, or killing your own civilians. You're, you're, you're basically losing some technology, um, and with technology that is being pre-programmed, it's dumb. It could be used as dumb technology. So, I think it's, um, I think going back to your point, well, I think Matt, the man in the loop will, will endure um, certainly in my lifetime. Uh, and, and hopefully that of my children, because um, uh, it, it will be a very, very, very different and very worrying place when, well, that, when that happens. Absolutely, happen. because the human aspect of it, and, and I guess, dare I say it, perhaps the, the trauma of war is what makes people think before committing to something else. I always remember um, seeing an interview with Dennis Healy, um, and he was being asked about the, the Vietnam War and, and specifically why um, Britain um, didn't sort of get involved right away in the way that Australia and New Zealand did in support of the United States. And I think what sat behind that was the fact that, um, I think I'm right in saying that Dennis Healy was um, a beach commander on D-Day, or maybe it was Anzio actually, sorry, that was Anzio. Um, and so he, he had a hinterland of, of military experience. And I think it was, it's, that, um, which which goes on to another question about politicians and military experience in the, in as much that he knew what, what he'd be committing uh, younger guys to, um, albeit in a different theatre. And I think that the parliament in the 70s and, and 80s um, had people with that experience, not just from the Second War, but from Malaya and um, Borneo and Kenya, etc. Um, and I think... Interesting enough, I think when it came to the Falklands War, there was still um, there were still clearly a, a, a lot of MPs who were World War II veterans or a significant number, and I believe actually one or two of the senior military in the Falklands War were um, Second World War veterans themselves. So they they carried that knowledge through of not just um, residual knowledge of big military operations but also the responsibility of deployment and what it meant to actually be on the ground and everything that that entails. And I think that the whole, I mean, one of the aspects I think that goes back to maybe why trauma wasn't funded or the treatment of trauma wasn't funded so well in the early years of the 2000s, maybe goes back to the fact that politicians were that one step removed from military experience that perhaps hadn't been paid previously in, or in certainly previous decades. Um, but also as well that generally that, that when it came to military decision making, there wasn't that knowledge within Parliament and or within the political sphere. Um, and I think that's something that, again, 
would be worrying in future if if there's there isn't a knowledge of operations from a political perspective um and how that filters through to how the military is used that is a a very big question which yes i i think going back to the technology one could see a worrying scenario where easy to deploy tech uh, with devastating consequences deployed by people who hadn't necessarily known of or experience, had experience of military operations and the effect on the ground could be quite a worrying development. Yes, I, I um, again. Yeah, I, I, I think I think I do I, I do think that uh, I, I concur with your point completely. I, I one thing I I think we haven't touched on really um, about talking about technology, but medical technology um, has has, as you know, come on leaps and bounds, leaps and bounds. And I know that the Second World War was massive for <coughs> uh, battlefield trauma. Um, and, and I know also that that the medical system that supported me and many, many others in getting better um, has, has, has learned lessons that have been then, um, I suppose, dispatched around the world as medical best practice in, in saving and preserving life. Um, and, and also the medical science that has gone with it and therefore the technology that now goes with that. Um, things like the technology behind 3D printing. I was at a conference a while ago where technologists were talking about being able to print the first uh, heart, bionic heart, because it is, it is a, a muscle. Clearly there are more complex uh, body, bodily organs that the, you just physically couldn't do, but the mechanically the heart is probably one of the simplest to, to print, as, as amazing as that sounds. Uh, and they're looking at doing that on a trial basis in years to come. And one day we will see a battlefield trauma hospital, I'm sure, which will be largely machine-based with humans doing the, the mandrolic work, but bones being recreated and um, probably muscle tissues and, and other fantastic, amazing, incredible uh, benefits of, of A, Battle, battle experience, technology, and, and trauma—the positive sides of of warfare, if you will, if there are such things—benefiting um, the recipient, and then also going on to benefit civil, I suppose, the civilian population around the world, uh, and then into the third world, making. making life I, th better. I think yes. I mean, actually, you're absolutely right to mention the, the, the sort of the the technical impact of warfare on medical care generally is again as you say there's probably a whole phd um level and there probably is already um studies into that because certainly from my um you know, amateur knowledge of, of that kind of thing it, it's it's clear that that warfare just develops the care um the treatment everything around trauma um and injury to a level that just couldn't happen in peacetime and um, I mean, it's just it's clear from the Herrick, uh, the Afghan um, campaigns, just just how much development has taken place in terms of treatments of all sorts of injuries and how that has to feed through to the civilian environment back in the NHS or in the States and, and generally across across the world. The impact of that must be immeasurable in many ways. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I I've been a beneficiary of it uh, and uh, having sustained the injuries that I sustained. Um, the consultant surgeon, when I when I had come round, had sort of said, not only are you a very lucky, but if that had happened in a in a UK 
standard UK hospital, you you wouldn't have had the exposure and experience of the of the battle surgeons that you did have, and therefore you, the outcome would have been very very different for, for your family. Um, and, and oh, but well, that's fine. But also the medical grafts, the the uh, the immediate trauma and resilience that the staff had there and then to prescribe the the medical treatment that they did on the ground was was fundamentally life saving for me and so many others. And I think that that that's the initial care. The the post care as well is so so much better. Um, through the Defence Medical Rehabilitation Centre and our understanding of, of how I suppose the body body works and how the body um, the body is is uh, impacted by physical injuries. There's I know that there's a very long study. I think it's a 25 year study called the Advanced Study, um, ongoing at the moment, where they're assessing people from um, conflict Iraq and Afghanistan over a 25 year period um and they i think it's every three or every five years they're doing assessments on people to to see how their body is is um impacted by their uh injuries and some some of the people they are they are looking at are are physical injuries or recipients of mental injuries um and so it's um it's quite i think it's quite phenomenal that the amount of investment that's gone in a because it it probably has to but b because lessons really are being identified from it and and put back into best practice and the battlefield uh, and, and consistently changing and um i think from a from a western and a and a uk and a nato perspective that that is great when we when we are because we have the supporting network that surrounds us in in our modern world uh, that when we do have a debilitating injury, not only can you get better from it, but life life genuinely does go on, and and you can live a fairly normal life. But but I I would be hesitant to say that in a third world, um, where the support network, the care, the education, and the understanding isn't quite so detailed, a debilitating injury, yes, you may recover from uh, physically, and you may recover from mentally, but you may not have that supporting network around you and and i know there are some some questions that have been asked of life-saving traumas in third worlds that mean people are surviving but what is their quality of life and that's not a question that i'm going to answer or address but i know it's one that is addressed by the populations of those countries of saying well yes these people are are physically alive and and, and mentally alive but but how, what is their quality of life? And I think that's a really interesting, you know, medical science is one thing, um, uh, but, but how you it is another and, and is society ready for, ready for, for some of the science that, that does exist in the world? That's, it is a very, very controversial area, as you say, because, you know, the, the, it's, there's the old cliche, you know, it's, it's, better that they didn't survive and and I suppose that's been around from time immemorial but but unfortunately as you say because of the advances in medical time the question of of you know what is life and again <laughs> probably yeah cool. are, you, are you answering well, that it, one it, it's one that I guess that <laughs> medical ethics both military and civilian must that must be one that you know takes up a lot of the the board meeting when they from when they have those board meetings. It's a it's a, it's a really, I, mean, <laughs> I, I think yeah 
I mean, your experience, I think, is is extraordinary. As you were saying earlier on, because you have, because as as we were saying before, you are that person who should be um, you know, the, the focus of your. Dare I say it? And, and I don't mean any offence. Archetype of someone who should be traumatised. Yet you have um, the ability to to look at your situation and say. Um, yes, what happened to me happened to me, but actually, holistically, um, the the issues of trauma outside of the actual medical, the physical medical issues are much more about um, the people that that carried me to um, the Kazabak, the people that that actually flew the Mert, the the, the rescue helicopter, the people who actually treated me um, at Bastion, etc. I think that. That is an absolutely fascinating insight, and I mean, I think, I think it's without, without <laughs> sounding too obsequious, it's, it's massive credit to you, Nick, in terms of your perception of things. But I, I think from a military perspective, uh, a fascinating insight too, because again, um, I think you mentioned the other day that you'd spoken to uh, an officer who'd never thought of the situation in that way, who'd who'd thought of trauma as being about the individual, not about the the collective experience and that contribution that you're making in terms of just flagging that up I think is is really really impressive and, and I think is a hugely beneficial from a training perspective too so I yeah I, I, I I'm fascinated by that experience of yours because it's I, I think that I, I don't think that is being addressed yet in quite the way that you're starting to address it now am I being unfair in saying that uh, no, I think I uh, no. Well, thank you for the recognition, Will. But I, I, um, I, I, I started it out as a totally self, uh, selfish um, process, if I'm being completely frank and honest, and and that was purely because um, I had been told that having been in a coma for a while, that your body and your mind is going to crave. Um, like you would would if you'd had one too many to drink and and you wake up the next day and you have no recollection really of what's happened to you and then somebody tells you a snippet of your events from when you went to a kebab shop or you did something last night and you go oh yeah I, I vaguely remember that and then somebody might send you a photo and oh yeah I remember that and then all of a sudden your brain is very happy that you had a great night and you did that and that and you've only got two waypoints in your mind but that's sufficient for you not to think about that night again um I sort of approached it from a, a similar angle as I, I, I woke up probably three and a half, four weeks later, I think it was, after um, leaving Afghanistan without really understanding what had happened to me. I have I have a little bit of memory leading up to the event that, that led to my return home. And then I wake up nearly four weeks later in Birmingham, of all places, uh, and everything the world the world is great again and i 'm not sure how I got there or who I saw or what I did or anything and so, so very selfishly i I wanted to know I, I I really needed to know i guess for my own mental well being and and my own mental health at the time, I had to go and find out and i um I spoke to a couple of people quite early on uh, and it then almost in it, it gave me some a, a craving to go and speak to everybody, to go and find every single person on that, on, on my personal recovery journey, mm-hmm. um, to go and to go and say, firstly, hello, and um, 
uh, first, go and say hello, uh, and secondly, thank you because without them, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been, uh, wouldn't have been here today. So, so, uh, and and it meant I, I, I got to hear their experience, and uh, in hearing their experiences, I. Uh, was taken back and actually there is a bit of um, I don't think I've ever suffered from from uh, guilt the sort of the guilt aspect of it because um, it wasn't my doing that I put myself in that position and I know some people some people do do that but it was more an observation of wow I'm I'm okay I'm I'm mentally okay and I'm physically okay now but at the time I wasn't. Um, yeah, these people are physically fine, mentally fine, but they have they have a memory that they they can't get rid of. Or if they can't get rid of it, why can't they? And and maybe because they haven't spoken to anybody about it. Um, and as you as you point out, that's that was uh, critically the the pilot, the the medic, um, uh, intensive care nurse, and it was only uh, a couple of months ago that I met the the gentleman who very kindly and and very sadly had to knock on my wife's door and and give her the news that um at the time uh i wasn't very well um and it was in a a a purely chance encounter with a a mutual friend of ours that he was out running and he said i I met this guy once who was injured quite badly and he said oh yeah I, i had to tell somebody once about a guy that was injured and uh a couple of couple of days later they put two and two together and worked out that it was me, and and I I met this gentleman um, who has left the armed forces very very recently, and it was fascinating talking to him because he was tasked with going and knocking on someone's door with probably no more than fifteen words on a piece of paper that said injured, not very well, coming home, go to Selly Oak. I, I've I've abbreviated that significantly, but he didn't have any detail. He'd never met me, would never see me again um, if the system had its way. And it did, and and I wanted to speak to him, but I, I wasn't allowed to, and and rightly so. Um, but getting meeting meeting him and talking to him about his emotions and how strange it was that we could um, we could almost put it to bed because he was the final person that I hadn't spoken to was um, was fascinating. But I suppose my my selfish my sort of selfish element of, of getting to understand what happened to me it meant that that I really understood I think uh what was my story became probably about 15 or 20 different stories and and different interpretations of the same event um and understanding how different people reacted to uh their their element of that event whether they embraced it um saw it as part of their job as many of them did but as part of that job they had negative connotations or negative experiences um and then uh for those that that felt that they could have done a better job uh, and largely that was that was a, a a very strong theme through throughout everybody despite me and the others being absolutely fine now from a from a physical perspective um they did their job to the best of their ability and everybody survived, which is all that they could have been asked to do. So it was a really interesting journey. And it's one that I continue to go on and continue to evaluate my thoughts, their thoughts. And um, I don't probe because it's, uh, it's you know, I, I, I have an active relationship with all of them and, and chat to all of those individuals as and when I can. Um, but I think it's a really exciting journey. And I, I think it's one that we're just starting to scratch the surface of in the uh, 
in the UK? I think it, it, it's because in in some ways it, it's it, it's an extraordinary thing, but, but, but I think to meet with you and for you to be able to sort of speak with them and and I I suppose it, it does it squares the circle. It, it it may not necessarily help them um, deal with it as in its entirety, but I think almost. And maybe I'm putting words in your mouth here, but do you almost feel that you're the key to to helping them understand what happened to you, which sounds counterintuitive, but it, it's I can see what you're saying. It's it's that they, they need you to help them about to get to terms with your injury. <laughs> if that doesn't sound too ridiculous, yeah, yes, absolutely. And and I needed to um, I needed to. To, to chat to them really to to understand my injury and I think it was um I think it I think it was beneficial for both parties that was the, that was the fascinating thing is I had to talk to them to find out what happened to me and maybe at the time of, of engaging a conversation I was maybe like a bit of a madman possessed saying I want you to relive this most horrific memory of yours please tell me and I'm going to write about it I'm going to write it all down I'm going to write down the notes um uh, I'm, and I'm going to review it so I'm going to ask you some pretty leading questions um and i suppose in some respect i was teasing out some detail that maybe they didn't want to come across but in doing that they've released some of that pent up or considered thought that they that they didn't have and and um i felt like a, a bit like an investigator at times uh asking them some dark and deep questions about not about the meaning of life but why did they feel like that and what was the benefit to them and and you know did they do the right thing and and actually there were probably some unfair questions but at the end of it we always had a really really positive and uplifting experience that was we've spoken about our mutual traumas um i would categorize them as as i have done is that i'm the survivor but they're the victim of that trauma um uh, and and whether they've chosen to speak to other people about it is is un, well is un, it, almost irrelevant but they've shared that trauma with somebody else and part of it is 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 great because they've spoken about it they've spoken about it with the victim and i think mutual uh recovery has been has been has been important a for myself and, and again back to being quite selfish um it's enabled me to to recover because i understand what happened to me um fairly intimately from every every angle from from the person the pilot who didn't see me at all we'd never met until i went and said hello to him because i was just a piece of cargo effectively <laughs> down the back but but he knew that if he did if he didn't fly me at max speed and on no fuel uh which you, you can't do max speed and no fuel um because you'll run out of fuel sooner so um he knew that he had a really finite balance to to make in order to get me back to save my life uh but again it was just a bit of cargo that was delivered um but that's not how he ever saw it. And so, yeah, a very fascinating experience, a very um, uh, uh, uplifting experience now. I think at the time for those involved, probably not so much. Um, and I don't think they, they all have happy memories uh, surrounding what, what I term as, is my story because it happened to me. But it's not my story. It's their story because they have a, a vitally important rendition and a vitally important view of their trauma Um uh, and, un and understanding that has enabled me to understand mine. And I, I guess, in in some ways, um, it, it's the other the other aspect about this, which again um, I I think is a 
is unique to military trauma is, of course, that in a civilian environment, um, a, a trauma occurs. And uh, I absolutely agree with that theory that, you know, trauma is trauma. I think the, the one difference in a military environment, and I guess this would have come from all the people you spoke to involved with that, is something absolutely terrible happens. And it it normally happens on a very quiet morning when no one's expecting anything and suddenly snap, 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 and it all hell breaks loose. Um, and then an hour later, after the, the Kazivak has taken place, you sat there somewhere as securely as possible, eating the dreadful compo, no matter how much they've improved it, it's still pretty dreadful, I'm sure. And you're getting on with the rest of your day and then something else happens and it's that it's that cumulative effect of, of you know, in a civilian environment, normally if something terrible happens, um, it's, it's fairly extreme and it's sort of an isolated incident. Whereas in the military environment, tour environment, those people you spoke to will have had that incident and, and, uh, and dealt with you. And then they'll have had to get on with, with other um, military activity and still been there facing the dangers and that that must be very interesting for you to to both from your own history in terms of what happened after I left and everything else but also for them as as uh, serving personnel to to really get a context of, of what they do all the time and as you say some people would have said oh it's just my job and others it would have probably been um in, in many ways, uh, some way of indicating them just exactly how difficult their tour and environment was again to them. Um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, having chatted to to all of them, um, there was just my job largely, and uh, I think that's that that I accepted um, as yes, absolutely, everybody has a job to do uh, because they are away as part of a, a, a tour or an operation. Um, but it's when you humanize it, if that's even a word, is when you, is you, you link that bit of that job to the outcome that it's achieved. Um, and that was, that was the area for me is, is saying that happened on that day and therefore you did this, which saved somebody's life. Um, until you actually put an emotion behind it, uh, it, it is just a job. It is just that. And, and, and you know, there are many amazing firemen, policemen, care workers, doctors, nurses in the UK doing this day in and day out and day in and day out. And whether they are acutely recognized for it or they truly they, they are truly aware of the, the sort of the impact that they're having on, on so many lives, I, I doubt it very much. And I think that that impact was just exasperated by Tor and the emotion of Tor and the relentlessness of it, which is no different to what I suppose the the NHS, the police force, and the fire fire brigade go through on a on a almost day to day basis. Um, but it was being able to put, from my perspective, go back and say thank you. You've done this to me. You have fixed me, and and look at me. I'm better now. By the way, how are you? And, and digging into there, um, actually, probably some of it was was totally unrelated to to the incident. Um, Certainly, my interaction with a, an intensive care, intensive care nurse in, in 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 a hospital when I went and said hello, I, I just wanted to go and, and see where I'd been in my coma for three and a half weeks. So I knocked on the door and went and said hello, um, and I met a nurse there, and 
I'd never met this nurse in my life, I didn't think, and um, introduced myself and uh, she came walking over and then looked at me and just, and cried and gave me the, a huge, huge hug. And it was almost like I was caring for, mm. for somebody else um, rather than the adverse of she'd looked after me. It turned out day in, day out for, for I think two weeks of my, of my three and a half week stint in a coma. And, and she had, she'd fixed me and, and just going back and, and seeing, I suppose, uh, one of her patients um, transition from being unwell to well to, to coming back, probably that emotion was not relevant or um, directly relevant to me necessarily. It might've been the emotion of her role and seeing success in her role. Uh, and maybe that it, yeah, that might be a unifying process actually for, for, for all of these people is actually I'm, I'm, re, I'm regaling a story or an, an element of trauma, but this is, this is normal for me. This is the bit of job that I do, whether that's a pilot moving cargo as such, uh, or whether it's a uh, intensive care nurse who's caring for people and, and actually once they go through the double doors at the other end, that's, that's, that, that's that statistic gone. Let's get the next one in and let's get the, the next one out the, the right double doors rather than the wrong double doors. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it was a, a very uplifting experience, I think, from, from myself, um, selfishly, but in order to understand their, their thoughts was, I, I learned so much, I think, about, about people. And do you, when you, when you met with um, all the people involved, um, ha, were most of them out of the military now or, or sort of 50-50 or...? Um, it was it was quite shortly after uh, initially um, my incident. So largely, largely they were all still serving. I'm trying to think of somebody that wasn't actually. Um, the doctor whom I uh, whom I spoke to was a reservist, so he he is a consultant specialist um, somewhere in the UK, uh, and and he was very openly there for the experience of being in, in trauma medicine because it offered him so much more and on such a regular basis that his he would improve his medical skills so rapidly on on operations um that when he went back to his so termed day job in the uk working in a uk hospital his level of knowledge uh, and skills and experience actually would would be so much higher that he would benefit you know he would benefit his his um his customer base so to speak so i think i I think everybody, um, I think everybody was still serving uh, at that point in time, um, and now obviously that's that's ten years on. Uh, not not so much the case. Um, I know. Uh, I think yeah. I, I think the majority have now subsequently left. But it's, I, I think the the point about we were talking earlier on about aftercare and what have you. I I, I often think within the military community when people are still serving, then then. To a certain extent, it's contextualized and containerized, and there are people you can speak to straight away or, or relatively quickly, and certainly colleagues you can speak to straight away. And it's it, it's it's interesting how I think that that post-military world, and I, I know you um, I know you do a lot of work with Help for Heroes as well, who who are very much involved in that too, both in in terms of physical injury and and helping with mental injury too. But it's it's uh, that that's something that, that interests me how people metabolize 
their military experiences um, post post leaving, and whether whether it gets rolled in, ploughed into uh, a longer life, um, touch wood, or whether it's it, it sort of sits there like a, a sort of bad dream without sounding too dramatic. And I guess that's that's one of the great questions that's, that you find in literature and films and, and, and goodness knows what. But it, it, it fascinates me because catching up with um, military colleagues, myself, former military colleagues, um, one or two are still in the military, um, a lot are out, some were regular, some were TA, that's what it's now Army Reserve. Um, and it's, I know I've said this to you before, but it's that very, very different perceptions of things. Some of them, as you say, they're just doing their job. And as far as I'm aware, it, it, it really doesn't bother them. Others I've spoken to will say it, it, it sometimes comes back to me and it comes back pretty hard. And I don't know why. And equally, they don't know why it goes away again in terms of their feelings of whatever. Um, others, one or two people have really gone into the sort of rights and wrongs of things. And I think have gone, I won't name any names, but have gone quite left-leaning in their politics as a result of their experience. And I, it, it is interesting how that, how people in civilian street sort of metabolise what, they went through just generally in the military, but specifically operationally. And I think that's sort of wrapped up in the whole trauma and how one handles difficult experiences. And I think there'll be a lot of data coming out about that in the future, as as, as it did from the Second World War and, and other campaigns, where how do people um, live as civilians with what they've been through? And it's a, it's a question I'll, I'll put to you. Is it something that you... How does it? What a guy said to me recently. He said it doesn't sit on my heart anymore, which I don't think he quite knew what he meant. But I mm. sort of knew that he didn't know <laughs> quite what he meant. But I knew that he was whatever he had experienced previously, and he was on that on that Afghan tour. Which I think that was the tour. Maybe it was the the million round uh, presentation you saw, or that or that tour, where he went expecting one thing and and had quite another experience and. Yeah, he, that phrase, it didn't sit in his heart anymore, I think indicated where he was at. But does it sit on your heart anymore or is it something you can metabolise? No, I think I, think I, um, I, I was very fortunate in that uh, I was injured on my, my first tour um, and I then, uh, I suppose in the, the between years, I'd, I'd flown somewhere on an aeroplane I'd got off, I'd done a job and then I, I don't remember. And the next thing I wake up is waking up in Birmingham hospital. So from, from my perspective, and it, it, again, slightly selfish is, is I went somewhere on an airplane and I remember doing that. And then I don't remember coming back. Um, and, and well, you, you read a lot of books. <laughs> I, 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 would you, would you, would you, would you finish a book halfway? So would you stop reading a chapter and then go, that's it. I'm not going to finish the rest of that chapter. I'm going to read the end of it. And from my perspective, that's how I, I viewed my, my tours was I've got to go back because I've got to remember flying out of that place. Um, because I, I, I just need to from, for my own mental well-being. is, is I, I, I went somewhere. I've got to come back. So, um, I, I know a number of people that have had time to analyze the actions that were taken on tour, whether they were their own or whether they were the decisions that were made 
uh, and and requested of them, or they were given tasks that they at the time adhered to and wanted to do, and have had time to reflect on those and have now sought a different opinion, a different view, um, and and they 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 look back a lot, um, which has changed their outlook on their their service actually largely some people have changed their outlook on their entire careers off the back of a decision or an outcome that was made um which might have been a split second or it might have been a a cognitive thing over a, a period of six months whilst they were away and and um and, and i think that's quite a deep-rooted question of of uh per- personal opinion on and have they have they are those individuals found something that makes them satisfied are they satisfied with themselves or were they dissatisfied with their service because they didn't achieve everything or or were they overly satisfied and, and they've got an, an area of guilt or resentment about something that they did or or actually have they just had time to compress or decompress all of the actions uh, both morally ethically uh, their own personal considerations as they've uh, as they've grown and, and experienced more things in life, have they decided that actually it wasn't the outcome that they wanted to achieve or, or whatever? And that's, that's a, re- a truly personal thing. Um, and I know for some, it really does impact them quite hard. And, and, and there's a lot of people that look, well, I say a lot of people, that's, that's unfair. There are a, a, a small number of people that look back and review their service time or, or their career with, with some mild marks but i th- i think that's that's probably universal um in in most careers and i'm sure if if we looked at um anybody in business they would have they would have similar um decision making quandaries and and did they do the right thing and uh, uh and i know i'm sure sportsmen and women do the same as well so um a, a bit of a get out answer there well i'm sorry but i i'm i uh I, I personally, I, I, I left um, a large number of people say, well, you, you still talk about your experiences, therefore you haven't dealt with them. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think I, I'm, I talk about my experiences because, uh, A, it, I found it hugely beneficial to me in getting me from a, from a relatively bad physical place to a, to a much better place. Um, but also, if it's got me better, maybe maybe it might be able to get a few other people better and along the way. And certainly if they've got some, some issues that they haven't considered that they might have, then, then talking about it is, is, is critical to, to, I think, um, a better outcome. It, it's, I, I think one of the things that I uh, think is, is very interesting is, is that when you went back, because I know that was, uh, you know, that is your military career. I think perhaps a lot of civilians don't understand, you know, that you often don't have a choice about tours. You, that's that's what you're scheduled to do. But you you went back, and that that must have been, or maybe it wasn't. I mean, I again, I may be over dramatizing this, and probably am, in that I sort of would view that as massively getting back on the horse. But actually, you may have just gone there, and it was a different tour, different people different mission and actually you didn't necessarily compare and contrast your injury and the, and the uh, incident before with the subsequent tour of Afghanistan or I may be very wrong there but it that I find fascinating how you must have felt going back for a second time after everything that had happened 
I think um, in speaking to a number of the people that I did when uh, after my injury and finding out how they were feeling, um, a, a, there was a couple of them that I was still working with at the time, um, and they was we were still serving in the same unit, and uh, as a result, they. I wanted to. I wanted to get better personally. Again, another selfish, another selfish act. Um, I wanted to get better uh, for my for myself, but also I wanted if they if I was going to go back, I want and then these other individuals wanted to come wanted to go back as well. If I if I could get better from a from an injury, then there's no reason why anybody else couldn't. Again, which is a quite a an overly selfish statement, but but it but with a bit of support from your peers and and also from bottom up um the the young the young men and women that were were we were all working to a unified goal and sort of creating that that team to try and get that team ethos ready to go and ready uh, and out there again it was it was about getting everybody out not just getting an individual out and and i i kind of i kind of um was very keen to to deliver that to try and get everybody out of the door get them there if they wanted to go critically, no one was <laughs> just throw that in there as a caveat. Um, everybody, everybody wanted to be there, wanted to be part of the team. And, and so we did that. And I think from a personal perspective, I, I had a, a point to prove my, to myself is I, I joined the British army to go and do that role. And I felt that it was cut short last time, just through a, a sort of a, an incident um, and as such, I, I wanted to go and do it, do it properly, because I'd probably then live with a, a problem of, well, I, I, I didn't get the opportunity to go and do it properly. And, and now this is the opportunity I've got. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to embrace it. And there were there were some moments absolutely on that on that tour where um, the first contact, the last time I got shot at, it didn't end up very well. The, well, the first time of going back into contact, it was, yeah, yeah, that's what it sounds like. I, rem- I remember what to do now. Um, and that's belittling my military training, but but, but in, in it, uh, uh, there were a couple of occasions, there were a, a few casualties and uh, a few other experiences that did make me think, ah, oh, I'm doing this again, and, and last time it did this, and this is the impact it had on not just me, and, and it was it was critically not not so much about pain, selfish pain. It was more about that sort of mental pain that it causes so many so many other people and and actually did i want to did i want to go through that well ultimately yes because i i wanted to to get to the other end to demonstrate to the people that i was i was with that let's do it as a team let's get everybody there let's get everybody back if we can and and let's get everybody home and let's not go through this process again and um it was a very very satisfying and again selfish moment to to do that but um I think the success for me personally was was getting on that aeroplane and and flying home, which sounds mad because that's success for everybody else when when they're on an operational tour. But um, I remember that trip home, um, which was which was great, rather than the last time where I was in the back and of a C seventeen. With all of that entails, yes, I, I absolutely that that must have been a tremendous moment for you because to 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 square that circle, as you know, I'm talking cliches the whole time, but to square that circle. Um, I think it, it, without being too psychobabble about it, it must have been hugely important. And, and maybe that's, you know, that's contributed to the way you view the whole thing. 
Um, and I, I think it's it's interesting um, that you sort of mention about the, the compassion for other people as well in terms of the, the people you're out there with and, and bringing them back. And I, I think that's, again, as, as a leader, that's what you're tasked with. It's a huge responsibility. And I think to the, the fact you can bring them back as well must have felt made you feel great because previously, as you say, as a leader, you weren't able to do that through no fault of your own because you were injured. But um, to, to, to see that holistically, I think, yes, I can see exactly how that squared a, a huge circle for you. And uh, it must have been great just to have a different tour and to, to come away with that positivity. I think that must have been a huge tick in the box, both career-wise, but more importantly, personally. Oh, it was. It was. And, and it was a really um, personally satisfying thing because I, I went into that um, that second tour, not with an element of doubt that I couldn't do the role or it wasn't achievable or anything like that. But the the the, the overarching memory I had was you go you go on tour as an individual and you come back and you come back some somewhat not very well. Um, and you, you've then got this process to go through before you, you can move on and do it all again, because I was only working off my history. And, and despite what everybody else was telling me, my history said, I go on tour, I get injured, I go home. Um, I get better, I go home and go through this process of sort of cyclical process. And I suppose um, not only was there a huge weight from a, from a, a leadership perspective of I've achieved what I set out to achieve which was to to get everybody back but um and i know that 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 isn't always the case for so many um and and through no fault of their own um but from from a personal perspective it was i've i've got the people there that were with me on my first tour who maybe had some uh negative connotations around the the trauma experience that we both shared and uh, and still share to this day is look we, we we've both gone we've both shared an experience let's both go back and let's let's share other experiences that that can move us away from that 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 memory that you that we both share and um uh i think uh, i don't i don't know i still you know what is success well i think for, for me it was pretty binary at that stage and now looking back it it's actually um, it's all of the things that success isn't actually that that it was um, was really deeply satisfying. So getting on an aeroplane, um, not going through the rigmarole of having to get better again, not going through the rigmarole of having to relearn um, how to do so many normal bodily tasks, normal normal functional tasks rather. Um, so that was that was what success looked like is is to be that sort of stand more standardised person that returns from an operations. Because uh, I didn't get to have that the first time round, um, and uh, it was a wholly uplifting experience. And and I think it's probably worth at this stage as well just mentioning that on my first tour when I did get injured, uh, I say I didn't fly home. One of the best things I did whilst I was in the army was I was flown back to a place called Bloodhound Camp in um, in Cyprus by the then uh, officer commanding of the unit that I was with. Um, to do the decompression and his his view which will, will will live with me was we sort of left as one and, and we'll return as one 
And um, everybody that was injured on, on that tour was all flown out um, by uh, the regiment into a into Bloodhound camp where we met up with everybody that had come back at the normal time from, from operations. Uh, and, and that was a hugely uplifting experience in doing that. So his, his mentality was, we, you know, we all got on the bus at the same time to go. We're all going to get on the bus at the same time to come back, whether you were injured or, or, or otherwise. Um, and I think that was a, a real success for all of those that were flown back to, to come back as one team. Um, and it created that sort of one team ethos, which is, which lives on today. And, uh, I think many, many, many people, irrespective of rank and friendships, um, keep in touch and, and have that, that wider I think that's, network. That, that whole decompression philosophy, I think I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that now is, is, is part of the thinking because, um, I think you made a point about having other experiences with people you shared really difficult experiences with kind of in a way balances things out. And, I, I completely concur with that. I mean, my only experience coming back from tour, as I say, just once from, from Iraq, was as TA soldiers, we were pretty much demobilized, driven to a railway station. And um, I mean, I arrived back uh, and was sitting in flat in London, still in my stinking Basra kit, um, and sort of thinking, wow, uh, everything's still where it is. I think there's, oh, there's still stuff in the freezer. It was, it was almost that kind of, you know, <laughs> got to get my head around this. Um, and I'm glad that the sort of, and, and I think that was a fault of the TA rather than the regular unit we were with. In fact, I think the regular unit they were with were trying to get us to go back to Germany. But I think partly because of funding and all sorts of other reasons about contracts and pottle and, all those other mad things that we had to go back to Nottingham to be demobilized, etc. But what it, what happened was we, you know, one moment I was with, um, you know, force protection unit in Basra. The next moment I was sitting in a flat in London and sort of thinking, okay, well, tomorrow I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go and see mum and dad. Yeah. I'll go and do that. You know, and I, I, I think <laughs> it was, it could have been handled better, should we say? And I, Talking to people subsequently, we actually sort of got together and did our own decompression. Um, and subsequently, the people I've stayed in touch with from the unit, both Formula Regulars and former TA people, um, we've done other things and been away to places. And you're absolutely right. It, it's If you have shared experiences with people you've shared other more difficult experiences with, you've got more of a, a basis for conversation. You don't have to go to the... Do you remember when that happened? You can you can talk about something else that's much more positive. And then if you do end up talking about something, it, it can be much more jolly, something funny. Because the other thing is, of course, is that what people, a lot of civilians don't realise is that my my one experience of the tour is, is that either stuff is pretty grim or it's a lot of laughs. And the laughs outweigh the grimness, in my experience. It may be, and, and I'm not belittling your injury in any way, please don't. Please don't take that from this, but it's that actually the, the the tours there's a such good morale on the tours that um, you know people forget that too. And yes, I think you're right to get together as a as a group of people is is really important, which is why you see on Remembrance Day all the old boys getting together. It's 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 not it's let's be real here. It's of course it's about remembrance for a small portion of the day, but for a lot of the day 
they're just dying to see so-and-so and they want to catch up with so-and-so and that's what it's really about and 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 that is what it's really about as well it's that camaraderie is a is a hard-earned thing and a and a, and a, a, a lifelong thing yeah definitely a definitely a shared experience thing and and i think to take it out of the military context um i uh, i presented last week that that as as people i was presenting to an audience of uh some military some civilian and so I had to try and find a unifying a unifying bond between the audience otherwise you'd, you'd have half a presentation and half a presentation that was sort of unrelatable and it was very simple everyone everybody has memories and everybody has positive and negative thoughts and and you sort of regale some childhood memories and, and say well at childhood just quickly what do you know what are your top five memories and and that some of them will be good, hopefully. Uh, and then you might have one or two really bad ones, really bad ones. But they're the, they're the first five that come to your mind. And then as you go through life, you, you pick up on your, your sort of top five memories. And in doing so, you realize that you, broadly speaking, only remember the good and the bad. Now, you have to then think about what was that 90% of time that was just normal life, just the normal stuff that I have to think about to remember. Um, and, and it's those shared experiences of, of tour uh, and I presume of the workplace where you say, oh, yeah, do you remember when we did this? It will be a high. And almost certainly it will be the first thing. Oh, yes, it will be. That was a great time. Or do you remember that when, when that happened? It wasn't so good. And so that decompression and, and um, mutual understanding of shared experiences is um, is is really part of the strong military bond, the camaraderie, and it's nice that you linked it to remembrance. I hadn't considered that, but but of course it is it is that, and and that military family is 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 really very much a family. I think, and and when you when you um, I was on the train this weekend talking to somebody, and he picked up that I was um, uh, I was military of, for some reason, and we started talking and. And before you knew it, we had no connections whatsoever in common, but we had a shared bond and a shared, a shared understanding. Um, and I think that goes that goes far and wide for for any veteran, um, be they um, World War Two, Falklands, through to the sort of present day, and and those that currently serve. Um, and and I think it, it it's just finding those shared values or those shared experiences that then enable that first conversation. And as you point out, the the conversation that you're that you're having doesn't necessarily need to be a really positive one or a or a really uh, a negative one, so so to speak. It, it's it's sharing that conversation, breaking down the barrier uh, to enable the conversation to flow about whatever it needs to flow about. And if that's to regale good times and bad times, to address issues, then then so be it. But I think um, I think it's a really really powerful. Um, uh, a really powerful emotional piece and and we try we i say we the military tries to recruit off the back of it and says you know camaraderieship and if you haven't really experienced the true camaraderieship that the services offer it's very difficult to express to a third party audience um maybe sports teams are probably the closest to say that's that is probably the 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 closest you're going to get because i'm not suggesting that the military is a high performing team but but there is that mutual belief of, of each other and shared experience and, and therefore high performing teams, um, like much like sports teams have that camaraderie that, that, 
that we all say aspire and I think this, to have. You're absolutely right. And I, I think the other thing is, and you, as you found on the train the other day, the thing I find is that it's, it's <laughs> using a computer term, it's the sort of plug and play element of military people in that I think when you meet military people, as you say, they could be Second World War veterans or they, they could have been contemporaries of yours or even from a different service, that there's just so much common ground straight away. It's just plug and play. You can you can be off, and it could be a work environment, or it could be you know just downtime, whatever. Um, there is a sort of shared. It's it's all about the sense of humour, which I think um, I always remember um, a, a very very wise senior NCO saying to me at, at, at the end of the tour. Sorry to bring it back to my tour, but just before we went home, um, I think he'd seen our transition from sort of. Uh, TA soldiers through to sort of pretty competent soldiers, wouldn't say brilliant, but competent. Um, and all the humor and kind of darkness that that can sometimes entail. And he said, you guys are going to have to watch your language, watch your humor when you go back, because a lot of the things you're talking about now and the way you talk about things, um, you're just not going to be able to get away with that. <laughs> Probably not just with family, but just right on the wider perspective. And I think that's one of the joys of of getting back together with military people, either people you serve with or that plug and play element is that it only takes two or three minutes and, and someone will say something that probably would get you in front of human resources if you were at a workplace normally and, and, and then you're away. And, and yeah. I know sometimes I've said things um, and my wife has been utterly shocked by it and I realise it's it comes from the context of something that, of military or something on the news and i'll have said something a bit dark about it and i realized mm, yeah that that sort of that kind of military approach to things is i hope i know the military has to change in terms of society it reflects society but i do hope that that element of it isn't too um managed out because you know i i i think particularly in a training aspect and and i know basic training now they have to be more accepting of the fact that you know things have to be slightly more touchy-feely but only the other day we were talking about a, a, a one of the ds that we had on my basic training who was just genuinely feared and um but everyone i know who went through that basic training uh carder um it was huge a lot of people did a tour subsequent to that um and we're just hugely fond of the guy because I think he pushed in the right ways. Um, it was an act, actually. It wasn't really like that. But it meant that, um, you know, all those little things when you do deploy, you remember and, and it keeps you going and in some cases keeps you surviving. Um, it's hugely important. And I'd be, I'd be worried if the military were sort of trying to curtail that kind of stress level in the training and the humour and the what some people now would term as bullying and I would term as rip-taking. We were watching, um, this is going to be very sad now, but we were watching Celebrity Jungle in, in Poland. So at, uh, at huge expense or certainly in terms of using data on my phone. Um, <laughs> but, but one of the things was that one of the people in Celebrity Jungle was sort of accused of bullying. And I thought, no, you were picking someone up on not, doing his job and that meant it impact on other people and the way you handled it was just by taking the rip a bit and then that didn't happen again and I thought mm, I hope that doesn't you know I hope he isn't you know picked up for the bullying and I know that that's starting to creep into the military a little bit and I hope it doesn't 
fully get in there. But maybe I'm just an old fossil now and being nearly 50 probably am in terms of the, the latest ways of training and things. But. Well, I, th- I think, I th- sorry, I think, I think the way that the, um, the, the, the way that the millage trains is always reviewed. And again, I, I can speak now cause I'm out, but I, I think the the I'm not going to suggest that bullying doesn't happen because uh, I'm not going to suggest that it does happen either. I think there's um, there are some real real insights into the way that the military trains um, because it trains to fight at the end of the day, and, and as you rightly said, it trains to to, to ensure that people are uh, achieve what they need to achieve at the right time. Um, and I think each unit has its own personality. Um, as a as a as a unit, and within that, clearly you you have personalities like you would do in any job anywhere in any organisation anywhere in the world, um, and I, I think society and the way that society is interacting and um, the the I'm not going to say the youth of today, but the way in which the army is recruiting and needs to recruit um, and and people today that they, they don't they don't want to necessarily do the things that their forefathers did um they don't want to go on tour for six months they don't want to go on exercise for for six weeks in the cold um i'm not sure many people do but actually it it's the flip side of that with the good times um uh, and the character building that comes with that and to throw somebody from a, a place of work or education or 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 a different space in their life to say right in you go go and experience this it's not going to land well and i think in the maybe in the 90s and early 2000s when that was the let's go and experience this it's going to be great um well i'm not going to do that and i'm going to talk about it now because that's what everyone's being told to do is that being told to talk more and i'm going to talk about it and i, I actually think this is this is this is not right behavior because we now understand what what more what what is socially acceptable um uh and and in doing so i'm going to be slightly more vocal about it and and maybe that's where we are in in that space the bullying and harassment stuff i think it's a very contentious issue because bullying to one person is not bullying to another um and and it's a very very fine line and and also it's that it's that that camaraderie element and i'm not suggesting there's a direct link at all but it's um in, interesting to see how um uh to see how it is perceived uh externally um that, that, that if the military is still a bullying organization I, i'm not so it's, sure i suppose the dilemma is of course is that um <laughs> you could argue that sort of a, a, a contact is sort of the worst form of bullying you could experience <laughs> i.e. some bad guys shooting at you or worse and and the, the preparation the training is preparing you to be able to react to that and and i suppose that what ds the fine balance they have to have is is creating a stressful environment where they know and can be satisfied that fred can do that under this set of circumstances therefore on the balance of probabilities if they were in a contact the chances are they would do the same thing um, and be able to support their colleagues, et cetera. And it's, that's where I think there's that delicate balance between civilian perception of, of stress and bullying versus what has to be tested in order to have a, a, a functioning 
army and, and forces. It's a it's a very difficult um, area, I guess, for, for the for modern army. I mean, I, I mentioned my friend in Poland who went back to, um, he was called up, I think I mentioned this last week, and um, he obviously came, like my other friend um, I mentioned earlier with the, the terrible incident with the uh, with the explosives, um, he, he'd come from a, a, yep. a communist era training. So he arrived for this uh, call out, call up for, for Polish reserves and was just pleasantly surprised by, you know, organization, the way in which things were done now um, and just thoroughly enjoyed it. But I think the two takeaways he had was that age, again, same age as me, he's nearly 50. Um, on the physical training, he was right up there with the youngsters. But also in the kind of shouty bit, uh, it just went straight over his head. But it's sort of clear that maybe it didn't with the, the youngsters. And I, I think it's just a sign of the times. But from a military perspective, you know, is, is it better to have a very fit 49-year-old who can take orders, deliver what's needed, or, <laughs> you know, this is probably a challenge for the Polish army now, but, or, or sort of lots of youngsters who are hugely fit and or, or could, could be got hugely fit, but maybe need to be persuaded and, you know, given time on the phone. And I'm probably being very unfair now, but it's interesting. It's a challenge for, for training, I think, for, for all militaries, but I guess it's that, is, is, that harshness has to sort of be there. Um, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe there's a different way of doing things. But I just felt when when I was really pushed personally, I felt that the harshness of certain things came through to help me in a way that perhaps maybe what we considered perhaps more gentle training didn't. And that's only my experience. But I know others felt the same way about this particular DS who we all feared <laughs> to the extent of hiding in all sorts of time. But I, I suppose I, I, I inter interestingly looking listening to you, to you talk about that member of DS, which, um, Will is is you you also said in the same sentence, but he achieved everything that he needed to achieve, so to speak, in that you'd learned your life lesson drills from him, um, and and also that it was a role that he played uh, at that point in time to. I suppose when it all hit the fan, the, your your knee jerk reaction was to carry out a drill by rote, without consideration as a life saving measure. So um, I, I don't know, and I, and I think I think that it, it's another. It's a, I keep going back to this social dynamic that is very complex um, because we've spoken about the changing nature of warfare. A sort of AI man versus machine, um, you know, firing the firing, the volume of bullets fired or rounds fired. Um, uh, and then the recruit, what is, what is a modern army? Um, and if a modern army is, uh, as maybe some nations are employing, hundreds of people sat behind terminals doing something, then, then actually their, their method of instruction and their level of intellect and their level of, interaction with other people um, on their perception of bullying, harassment, and, and, and interaction may be a different level of acceptance. It's, um, it, it's cyclical. And I know, and I know that there are, there are waves when it comes to things like sports, there are, there are certain peaks and troughs. Sports take a back, slight back burner.
Oh, I think I've lost you there. Um, you're back again. Uh, oh, did you did you lose yeah, me? Yeah, just lost you briefly there. Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's um, uh, interesting to see uh, what society's perception is now, and if has that softened or is that is that slightly more robust? I don't know. It's uh, I think. Definitely, the the, the the positives of the, in my view, the positives of the last sort of twenty years have been that I, I think there is a generation of people now who are uh, aware of what the military does and, and what the military means, and and I think to a certain extent uh, that that side of things is 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 reengaged. I think the question that you have about what the military is for and how it should be shaped, I, I think. This is part of the wider societal challenge of of the fourth industrial revolution that we're going through, and of course, we forget, or I certainly forget, that actually what what really shaped militaries generally in the last hundred years has been that the, the industrial revolution, where we were able to produce huge amounts of, of armaments and weaponry, etc. But of course, as you rightly say, the fourth industrial revolution is creating industries and technologies which are completely different and therefore the military needs to use those technologies um, for defense and for everything that surrounds that so yes you're absolutely right to say that it that, that sort of fitness and and that kind of uh, soldiering may not be as important um, but I think certainly from the perspective of um, uh, society and how society feels now I think there's a there's a lot more understanding. I, I, I worry sometimes there's a bit of what I call a sort of band of brothers sentimentality about it. I, I always, there's a couple of former colleagues of mine, mates of mine I serve with who I think feel I, I'm a bit sentimental and probably am because I, I read a lot of history books and sort of very, as you can tell, into that sort of thing. Um, and perhaps perhaps that's also, I've seen it evident in, so, you know, it's the sort of everyone's a hero sort of thing. And um, it, it's, it's always very embarrassing uh, when someone says, oh, "But you're you're a hero," and and you and you think, "No, I, really, that's that's not the case." And and not everyone's a hero. And guess what? Actually, like like society, there's some fairly unpleasant people in the military, as much as there are lovely people. And equally, some of the very unpleasant people do amazing things, and some of the lovely people do silly things. And it's very complex. And I think there's perhaps society needs those myths. I um, I think that there was a that, that film that Clint Eastwood did, Flags of Our Fathers, at the end where he says, perhaps we need to review how we see people as heroes and are they really heroes, etc. And I think that's another, uh, probably another discussion for another day. But I, I think society does have a different view of the military now and a, and a positive view of the military. I just hope it's, you know, a, a, a level view of the military and not just a kind of band of brothers view but I suppose if if that's what brings people in um then you know if it's a recruiting tool fantastic but yes I I, I think in some ways the military is probably in as good a position as it's been public perception wise and it's been well ever because you know with paraphrasing Rudyard Kipling you know there's always that sort of slight contempt for soldiers and in peacetime and and uh you know, everybody loves them in wartime sort of thing. Yes, yeah, and I, th I, I it's, it's cyclical, isn't it? The the, um, 
when you need when when you need the military, they're probably busy on operations, um, uh, not necessarily in the public eye. When you don't need them, there's a soldier so, sailor on airman causing trouble somewhere mm. um, in the news. Um, they, yeah, I, I, I'm very one-sided on my opinion, having spent a bit of time there. But I think it's, um, I think society understands that there is a need. There will always be a need, and um, whether that's to put up sandbags. Uh, when the when the rivers burst the banks, or whether that's to def- defend the homeland, it's it, it's it's neither here nor there. There are much bigger conversations around nuclear deterrent and other stuff, and I'm sure they'll they'll endure for many many years to come. But the 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 the, the nature of the fact is that there is there is a uh, there is a requirement for the military in its current role or in in its future role. Who knows? Um, but like you like you touched on the the fourth industrial revolution and. and how that how that will impact it and and its funding will be um, will be really phenomenal to see um, and how that interacts with um, the corporate world because it can't do it on its own. No, and um, I think that will be interesting as well where the corporate world sits with uh, military and defence and everything else that sits around that. And I think as dare I say it, the East India Company challenged a lot of authority in its day. I think that certainly there are some large corporations as we sit here now who may well end up fulfilling a sort of East India Company role in the world governance and with all the subsequent problems that that entails. Um, and again, these are defence challenges for the, for the 21st century. So it's, uh, it's going to be interesting times. <laughs> yes, yeah, very much so. I should, fin- I should really finish up now because I've taken up a lot of your time. And I, I really appreciate that, Nick. I was going to ask, in terms of, of how people should um, help, um, and I, I think it's sometimes I get asked by people, you know, who, which, which charities should I give to? I want to give to the military and, and which, what can be done to, to, to help? And it's one of those things that the moment you get asked, you think, oh, gosh, uh, it, well, British Legion's pretty good and there's combat stress and the thought for heroes. And, but I, I, I think... Certainly in terms of the trauma side of things in, and in terms of charity work, is, are there things that you sort of recommend people to support and, and to do? Or is it just a bit like me, give a sort of blanket answer? Oh, well. <laughs> no, I think, I, firstly, I think there's so many, uh, there's so many supportive charities out there for varying different angles of, of military trauma and, and be that physical, mental um, there is bereavement charities. There are all all names of charities that all do incredible things. And so to to pick, I mean, I, I'll pick a few out that that I've engaged with. Um, there's the Royal British Legion, extremely well known, um, very overarching from a from a supporting perspective, and they will certainly they will certainly do some good signposting for you. Um, much is the same as Help for Heroes. Um, if you are a, a forces recipient, uh, then if you, you will have heard of them, and, and they're, they're, they are very, very supportive. And then slightly further afield is um, a charity called the Ripple Pond, um, and they are a supporting peer-to-peer support network for loved ones of... Hello again. <laughs> I, will, I will. Sorry about that. No, that's that's all right. Sorry, the the, the tech, as I say, is uh, is cheap. <laughs> um, we were talking about charities and yeah. 
So the Ripple Pond was was one that you were you were talking. About. Yes. So the Ripple Pond is slightly further afield from the conventional and large military charity, but they they are a um, a charity close to my heart because they support the um, effectively those that have supported the survivors of trauma, be, be they both physical and, and, and mental, and they are um, a network that offers uh, guidance and signposting um, and talking to others with shared experiences. So um, they are they are definitely worth a look. Uh, they're online and they have membership across the world. And um, they are a, a charity that I would certainly go to to go and have a look and understand what they do. But they, their aim in life is to is to link people with shared experiences, uh, uh, to share their thoughts, experiences, and their benefits uh, f- for the benefit of, of that of that specific community. Um, but like I said, there are so many so many good charities out there. Uh, difficult to point fingers at at, at, at all of them. Um, uh, but uh, but I know that um, they are always looking for funding, uh, all of them. So d- dig deep and, and look in. Certainly, I, I always tend to support them. The military charities. Not suggesting that others aren't great, but no, you have to you have to pick. I'm I'm the same. You 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 have to pick your your charities. And I I think that uh, yes, I'm I I'm a military charity person, and, and that's that. And uh, no, I it's it's an interesting area, and I think that certainly from the trauma care side of things i suppose going back to what you were saying before they they also will be collecting a lot of data on uh, how in the future uh, trauma is dealt with and and what that will mean and i think that that side of the charity work is is hugely important too um and i imagine that, that in the future uh, that, that i assume these, these charities say these charities ripple pond for example it's set aside from the military, am I right in saying? But but in the same time, it will it has the capacity to sort of feed back into the military community in terms of what their findings are and and everything else. Yes, although although I think yes, you, you're absolutely right. They are they are um, they're not a specific military charity, um, but they are a charity that supports the military community. Yeah. Um, I think there's a subtle variation there. Um, and when it comes to data, I know I know that um, they, uh, I believe anyway, that they don't hold data. I, I, I think I think charitables and holding data is a very murky world, and GDPR mm-hmm. becomes a thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I I don't believe that they do hold data um, on on the topics at which are discussed anyway. Um, and and it, it being a peer to peer support network, it's. It's largely driven by its members. I say driven by its members. That's it, it, it's it's an organisation that supports its members for the benefit of its members, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, uh, so I, I don't think that they are a, a data capturing uh, charity. I think there are others, and, and some of the larger ones that have a much 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 larger footfall probably are would have better um, analysis of the data that, that, that they can take in and, and they link in they then link directly to the military as well and feed that back in into studies and i know king's college london do an awful lot in in this space about uh, um, mental uh, mental trauma sorry mental and trauma um sort of wellness and well-being and resilience and, and that sort of stuff after injury so I know I know that there are studies ongoing, and, and charities like Combat Stress who also look into into this and support this activity. So, because of course, yes, I think King's 
College. Are they, are they, are they a centre of military medicine? I, did I read that somewhere that they... I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Um, beyond my pay grade, unfortunately. <laughs> I have to find out now. Um, but I, I think it's, it's certainly these charities, you know, the, the work they do is in, incredible. And I, I think that, as you rightly say, they, they, they need consistent funding. I think there's, there's often urban myths that, oh, these charities have, you know, they own half of Oxfordshire. And, you know, you, you've probably heard them as well. And, and that they almost certainly have lots of assets, but guess what? The assets are needed to fund what they're doing, and and uh, they they need more funds to 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 fund what is still um, an area that they you know because of course it's not just recent people serving; it's people from the Falklands, Northern Ireland, right back to to Second World War still. Um, so you know they they need a lot of they need a lot of support. Um, I, I think probably, as I say, I've taken up a lot of your time, Nick, and I really, really appreciate that. Um, I think... No, thank you. It's been, been great sharing thoughts. Well, this is what I'd sort of aim to do with just putting it out there in a podcast. As I say, I, I, um, I was sort of inspired by dear old Joe Rogan and, and to a certain extent, the Navy SEAL guy, Jocko Wilnick, who said, you know, just get out there and do it, you know. And I thought, well... I know there are other podcasts doing military conversations, but I, I think that that certainly the our style of message and and w your story is is it's important to get out there for people because I think your approach to things is is, is massively positive, positive. and I also think your approach to things is is one that that will be of huge benefit to the military in the future. And I I really sort of commend the work you're doing there, and in terms of helping going to talk to military community and making them aware. Because as, as I say, without going over old ground, I, I'm aware now, and you see this, for example, at Trooping of the Colour, you suddenly realise there's a whole um, whole new intake of soldiers who, who don't have any um, campaign medals. And that's absolutely fine, you know, they're, they're none to, but, but also you realise that they won't have the experiences that you have. And increasingly, they, they will, those that do have those experiences will migrate out of the military and it will be a military of of trained soldiers who won't have that direct experience of that, that you have so I, I think the value you can add to them and all services is is absolutely huge and i you know i really appreciate you doing that work too and i'm sure those those soldiers do because if you're a soldier who hasn't deployed it's that kind of information that you you absolutely crave i remember you know being briefed by soldiers who just returned from the tour who were still a bit edgy and they were they were that actually was probably one of the most useful things that I had before deployed just simply because you thought right you know this is real and this is what we can expect so I I, I thank you for doing that Nick it's uh, I'm sure that the no no hugely appreciative well, I hope I hope I hope it um I hope the podcast is Oh, I think I've lost you again. <laughs> Are you there, Nick? <laughs> Hello again. We'll try again. Sorry. No, that's that's absolutely fine. I th I think. Um, as with all these things, you're learning along the way, and I can see now why people invest in <laughs> other technology because yeah. I just realised, yes, that the, 
other telephony clashes with it and, and that's that's fine unless you're doing a podcast recording <laughs> well in, unless unless it, unless of course it's going on um you do it via a laptop yeah that is true that is true yeah. i i, I think, I, think yeah, I, I down, download it onto an ios platform and do it from a loudspeaker because what Anchor, who produced this application, for anyone that's interested, uh, uh, they do. They, I think, they only want it done or only allow it to be done for free via the phone. So I think what I may oh. find is having to invest in the uh, desktop or, or Apple app, uh, so it can be done on a on an Apple or a, or a PC, um, may be the way forward. Because I, I think yes, I it, it happens with other telephony too that the the phone kicks in and it knocks out hangouts or it knocks out skype and I, I suspect this is only a variation on that but um sorry about that nick and you you were sorry you were saying about the podcast it, itself no i was just saying you know i i, I think it's a, a great idea and i i really wish it well and um would love to be would love to be part of it in in going forward so please please keep me in mind if there's uh if there's anything i can help with well that that's very kind of in in a way i just just sort of would like it to be a sort of database of, of military chats really and uh anyone who's got something to say as i say i want to speak to people from all different generations as a chap i need to speak to the an op banner a northern ireland veteran i think it'd be very very interesting to talk to and another chap who um was in northern ireland with the green jackets in the early 70s when Yes, I think it, it, the, the, that was pretty kinetic for a, for a few months and and certainly i think wasn't reported about perhaps as much as it would be now. Um, uh, all these all these things are of huge interest because otherwise they are kind of forgotten about. And you know, even now, you know, as you say, ten years on from from Herrick, it's it, it can seem to some people like a distant memory. So I thought it'd be worth recording all these things. And rather than it being sort of you know all rah rah rah, just a more of a human thing, really. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. But Nick, thank you so much for your time. I, I really, really appreciate it. Brilliant. Well, have a uh, have a great Christmas. I will indeed. If we don't don't speak beforehand, and uh, yeah, you have a fantastic New Year, and um, we'll we'll speak soon. Many thanks. Will do. Th thanks, Will. All the best. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.